And as you do, you can open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. And we're really going to pick up very closely with where we left off last week, for those of you who were here. For those of you who weren't, and just to remind us, last week we were really looking at life under God's providence. Life under the reality that we as people don't really control anything. We have very little say and influence over what happens in our lives. But God does. God has total sovereignty, total control. He, he governs the world through his providence. Everything happens as he ordains it. And how that's a good thing for us, actually, as Christians especially. That's very good news, that, Christ, that God controls everything. Because in Christ, he does it all for our ultimate good. Solomon's closing encouragement last week was that when we go through joyful times, when we go through good times, we should rejoice. We should be happy about it. And then when we go through hard times, we should consider and remember that God is sovereign over these things. Well, Solomon does some considering as we look at our passage today. We're going to pick up in verse 15. He considers providence. He looks at the world around him. He watches how this providence plays out. And he has a hard time with it. He has a hard time with it. When he looks at how things actually play out in real time, in the real world, he has a really difficult time coming to grips with what he sees. And so do we. Even when we intellectually know that God is in control, that he's good, that he's working all things for our good, when we look around at what goes on in the world, it doesn't look like things are going the way that they should does it? Right? And then bring it even closer to home. Think about your own life and things you've had to walk through, the way certain things have gone and how difficult it has been. And it doesn't feel like there's a good, sovereign, wise God who's running it all. It feels way more chaotic than that and way more broken than that. And it doesn't look the way you think it would look if this is true. And that's what Solomon wrestles with here. He says all this stuff. He says God's in control. We're not. Think about that. And then he looks at it, and he spends time wrestling with it, and it's a struggle. He's a really hard time making sense of what he sees. But we're going to go through, and this, this passage, is, it's a hard passage. It's, it's a little strange, but we're going to watch him as he kind of shifts and changes as he thinks about it. Where he starts and where he ends are two different places in this span of 14 verses. And it's the same movement that we need to make along with him, right? And it ultimately leads us to a place of hope in Christ. So let's go ahead and read this, and then we will begin to unpack it and see what the Lord has for us there. Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your, ser your servant cursing you. 
your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, and a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask for your help this morning to understand your word rightly. Lord, we pray that you would grant conviction where conviction is needed. Do not let us be blinded by our own sin. Lord, and I pray that you grant us comfort where comfort is needed. Lord, that you would not, that you look kindly on us in the suffering and brokenness of this world and the things that we go through and that you would care for us in it. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that your word would not return void, but that you would accomplish all that you intend to do with it in us for the glory of your name. Amen. All right. So Solomon's already argued that we should come to grips with God's providence. God's in control, and we're not, and we should just accept it. But now that he's watching it, now that he's trying to do that, he finds it's way harder to do. It's easy to talk about, really hard to do in practice. And his main issue is this that this providence doesn't seem to fall out the way that it should, right? And it's primarily caught in this first verse we read. He says, in my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Solomon sees that, and he's like, this is not how things are supposed to be. The wicked are supposed to perish, the righteous are supposed to prosper and live long. This is completely backwards. God who's ruling and reigning over everything, and yet everything is wrong and backwards and broken. How do we make sense of this? How do we deal with this? Those who live righteously and wisely ought to see long life. They ought to prosper. And those who live foolishly and wickedly ought to find poverty and untimely deaths, unlike the righteous. And we see this play out all the time, right? How often is the most qualified person the one who gets the promotion or wins the election? How often do we hear of drunk drivers who get in a car wreck and they walk away unscathed while innocent people die? This plays out in so many ways in our lives. We can see it everywhere. So as he observes life, he's saying, I don't see any corollary between pursuing righteousness, pursuing goodness, and good outcomes, or pursuing wickedness and abandoning virtue and then bad outcomes. That's what I should see, and I don't see it. I think this is one of the reasons we love stories, whether it's in movies or books or anything, because they usually resolve this, right? Usually things work out in the end. It may look bleak for a while, but eventually, usually the good guys went out and the bad guys get their just desserts. 
in the vast majority of stories. And we like that. We, we think that, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. But real life is much less neat and clean than that. And it doesn't t- it's not hard to see that. Things rarely resolve in a satisfactory way. We can look all over the place and see that results are not what they should be. And of course, this we confront this the most when it hits home with us. When it hits home with us. When you've tried so hard to do things the right way, right? You've, you've worked so diligently, and then things don't turn out the way that they should. You try so hard to be a good parent and to take care of your kids well, and then your kids struggle with things that you never thought they would. How did I get here? Right? You, you try to honor God and, and you would, with your relationships and your life, and you would love to be married, and then it doesn't come. Or you get married and you have all these great ideas about all the things you're going to do as a husband or wife, and then you have problems in that relationship that you never imagined you would have. You eat well and exercise, and then your health crumbles. These, you could go on and on and on in the ways this plays out. These are some of the hardest things we deal with in life. because it's, it's so close to home and it is so hard. You did everything you could to shape things, to make things right. You did all the right things and things have gone badly. And thoughts go through your head like, why me? Why me? Why not me? Why them? as you look around you. This happens to all of us. There's not a person in this room that's exempt from this who has not walked through these waters. I'm sure you're thinking of things in your own life that have been difficult in this way. So that brings us to a fork in the road, right? What do we, how do we respond when we face those kinds of questions, right? What should we do at that point? I feel like I've done everything right and things have gone wrong. Well, Solomon begins by warning us against two wrong ways to respond. In verse 16, he says, in a line that's very confusing at first, he says, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Let's start with too much wickedness. So one of our responses when we see this, right, when we try to do everything right and things go badly, one option is to just forget pursuing good altogether. Say, hey, like, if this doesn't work for me, right, if I'm not getting what I want out of this, let's just make a pragmatic decision and forget it, right? I'm not, this is not working out for me, so I'm going to run headlong the other way into foolishness and wickedness. Right? If, if I do this and, and I pursue all this good and I don't get the desired results and I look around me and I see all kinds of people pursuing wickedness and getting the thing I want, maybe I should go that route. Right? God doesn't seem to be punishing evil. It doesn't seem like they're walking in any consequences. So why should I bother pursuing good? So you chase whatever suits your fancy. Right? Now this is an error it's, and it's grounded in arrogance. It's grounded in arrogance. It assumes that we know better how to bring about good for ourselves than God does. 
And it assumes that he does not keep account and that he does not do justice. Both of those are false assumptions. They're deadly, foolish assumptions. I think a great example of this is the prodigal son. From, we can go to scripture, right? The prodigal son, the younger brother, the, the place he starts out, right? He's the, the younger son of this wealthy man, and he tells his dad, give me all my inheritance, and he goes, and he just spends it on pleasure and everything, and just goes crazy with it, right? And where does he end up? He ends up in a pigsty, eating the food from the pigs, right? He chases and runs after whatever he feels like, feeling, thinking there's no consequences to it. Might as well. Just, he insults his dad horribly and goes after that. And he ends up in this horrible, broken place. So one thing we have to remember is that sin is not arbitrary. God just didn't make up random rules to make things hard on us. Right? The things that God defines as sin, he defined those as sin because they are, those things are bad for us. God's law promotes what is good and prohibits what is bad. It's not arbitrary. It is designed for our flourishing. And so when we flaunt it and run off in the other way, we do so, we chase destruction. We chase destruction when we do that. Solomon knew this really, really well, right? That's whose account we're reading right now. It's written later, but this is Solomon's perspective we're getting. Solomon started out well, right? He takes over the kingship. God says, I'll give you anything you want. And what does he ask? He asks for wisdom to rule well best thing to ask for. So God says, yes, I'll give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. Riches and power, all this great stuff, right? And it goes great for a while, but it doesn't stay that way. Solomon falls off the wagon, and it happens through um, pursuing pleasure. Solomon ends up with 300 wives and 700 concubines, and we hear that reflected in what he writes. When he goes on in this passage, skipping down to verse 26, what does he say? He says, I find something to be more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. For all, for where Solomon started, he gets sucked in by this pursuit of pleasure through these women. And it doesn't just lead him into sexual sin, right? We read later on in Scripture that in 1 Kings 11 that actually that what started off as sexual sin ultimately led him into idolatry, right? He ended up apostatizing from Yahweh, stopped worshiping the true God of Israel, and began worshiping the idols of the nations around where he went and got all these women from. So it wasn't just the initial sin, it's what it bred in him on down the road. So Solomon tasted bitterly the results of what chasing sin does. It destroyed him. It absolutely destroyed him. So we can look around and we can cherry pick examples of of wicked people who prosper and flourish, but that's just window dressing, right? It's just part of sin lies and then it destroys you. And one of the ways it lies is it draws your attention to these wicked people who chase things who don't seem to pay for it. It doesn't seem to lead to their destruction. They're doing this and they seem fine. Why not me? Don't let those cherry picked examples where you don't see the whole story blind you to the destructiveness and deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies and then it destroys. Always. Always. Without fail. No matter what it looks like. 
on the surface. Right? And also, we cannot confuse God's forbearance, right? God's delaying judgment mercifully. Don't confuse that with indifference. God will do justice perfectly. Perfectly. There will be a perfect accounting for everything that's done. Right? In his mercy and grace, he waits. He doesn't do it immediately, which is a good thing, because if that was the case, none of us would have taken more than a breath in our sin. His forbearance is an incredible mercy and kindness and gift, but don't confuse it with indifference towards sin. And don't confuse it with the fact that he will not ultimately do justice and judge wickedness. So that's the one thing Solomon cautions us, warns us against, right? In the face of of not seeing things go the way we want, abandoning, pursuing good, and chasing wickedness headlong. It's devastating, destructive, foolish. Now the other thing he warns us against is it takes a little bit more work to figure out because it's a very strange thing to read in your Bible at first glance. To read that we shouldn't be too righteous. Probably haven't had too many sermons on that, have you? Be too righteous, right? What does that mean? Right? Don't be too righteous. Well, what he's not doing is he's not warning us against too much genuine righteousness. Righteousness being true obedience to the will of God fueled by the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about, right? He means something different, and it's really clear if you look at the rest of the passage because he talks about really how we need righteousness and we can't get it. True righteousness. So what is he talking about when he says too righteous? Well, he's talking about a particular kind of self-righteousness that strives to really manipulate God into giving you a desired outcome. Let me tease it out a little bit, guys. So when we're faced with circumstances that we don't want, sometimes we can think it's because we haven't been good enough. So one option is just abandon all chase wickedness. Another option is like, okay, well, I haven't gotten what I want, so I need to be better. Because if I was good enough, then I would get what I want. So we draw a straight line of connection between our personal performance and our flourishing or lack thereof. Right? I'm doing well, it's because I'm performing. I'm doing poorly, oh, I can, just, I can do better and I can fix this. And this appeals to us because it puts us in control. Right? If I'm not getting what I want, oh, I can just... I can just be better, right? I can fix this thing. I can fix that thing. I can bootstrap my way out of this and into what I want. We are back in control of the outcome. If things are not to our liking, we can fix it by doing better. And the same thing that makes it appealing, because it puts us in control, is the same thing that makes it absolutely abhorrent. Because it is the same root as chasing wickedness headlong. It's again grounded in our pride and arrogance. It assumes that there is some amount of performance that we can do that would entitle us to something from God, that would make God beholden to us, indebted to us, that he has to act in a certain way. We we can perform to a level that would force God's hand, essentially, to act in the way that we want. This is really what Job's friends, if you guys remember the story of Job, this is what they were telling Job. This is what they were preaching to him. Look, you're suffering because you sinned. So it's like, I don't know what I did. If I did, I would repent. I don't like the situation. This is not good. I'm not hiding anything. They're like, no, you must be. 
because if you would not sin, this would be, all be fixed and everything would be good again. And he's like, no, there, no, there's not. And I said, yes, there is. It has to be this way. They, they have this kind of theology. You could end this if you would simply do better. One commentator called this super-righteousness. And I don't know if that's the best word for it, but it at least differentiates it a little bit from, from true righteousness. It's grounded in pride and arrogance, just as the pursuit of wickedness is. Chasing wickedness, throwing yourself headlong into that, presumes a God who can't or won't act. Pursuing this kind of righteousness, this super-righteousness, functions as if God can be manipulated and controlled. You can dictate what he does by what you do. He is beholden to you. And again, it's grounded in arrogance and pride. So two bad options when we're confronted with the difficult realities that play out in front of us when things don't go the way that we want. But there's a third way. There's a third way that Solomon encourages us towards. And we find that in in verse 18. He says, it's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The answer to wickedness on the one hand and this super-righteousness, this manipulative performance on the other, is the fear of the Lord. It's a different way of relating to God altogether. And rather than being grounded in arrogance and pride, It's grounded in a fundamental humility, a fundamental understanding of our weakness and our total dependence on God. And that's really what he spends the rest of this passage driving us towards, leading us towards, and showing us what it looks like. And it starts with looking at ourselves honestly and truthfully. What Solomon really does as he moves on through the passage, he tries to kill the notion that we can do anything meritorious before God. Anything that would demand that God act in us in a certain way, or that would entitle us to a certain blessing or gift from God. Wisdom and righteousness are great. They're good things. True wisdom and righteousness. The problem is that you don't have them, right? You don't have them. They are beyond you. Listen to how he speaks about wisdom in these kind of the middle verses of this passage. In verse 19, he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Wisdom is good. But then skip down. He says in verse 23, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He says wisdom is good. Wisdom's a great thing. But ours, the, the wisdom you can get as a human being is so limited. It, you can say that you don't have any. It's that minute. Our knowledge of what goes on in the world, our understanding of how things work, how things work together, how all these circumstances we witness in the world are playing out and what they're actually accomplishing is so limited. We have times when we think we've figured out we're leading the tea leaves and We are so ignorant relative to God. Think about all you could study and all you could experience in a long lifetime. And now think about how small that is compared to to the amount of things you would have to know to actually wrap your head 
around and comprehend how God is working in this world through all the things that he's doing. You can't even get close. You can't even get close. So Solomon's trying to humble us, right? He's trying to cut against that pride and that arrogance that leads to the wickedness or leads to the overrighteousness. And he's trying to put us back in our place, right? He's trying to humble us before God. And he speaks even more strongly when it comes to righteousness. In verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Goes on in 21, he says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Go on to 27, he says, Behold, this I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand, he's talking about righteousness. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. See this alone that I have found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Take all this together, right? And Solomon basically says, God made us good. God made us upright. He made us good. But we have sought out every possible way there is to be bad. Every possible way there is to rebel, to chase wickedness. We have, we have exhausted those things. We found every way there is to rebel and to sin and to pursue unrighteousness. The point where there is nobody, there is not a soul on earth who does good and never sins. Not one. And the thing with the servant is interesting. He says you really shouldn't be shocked when you hear your servant cursing you. You shouldn't be shocked when somebody sins against you because you know how much you sin. You know how many evil things you think about other people. Right? Why are you surprised when you hear somebody say bad something about that? Look at the, the tape roll of your mind and all the things you think about other people. Why are you surprised that you're sinned against? You, you just sound like you're, you're a serial sinner all day long towards other people. This shouldn't surprise you at all. He says you can look everywhere and you will not find a truly righteous person. All this is meant to humble us, to bring us to the end of of ourselves. And I want you guys to notice how Solomon's perspective has shifted. This is big. So Solomon started out by looking at the world and he's frustrated because the righteous seem to fare worse than the wicked and the foolish better than the wise, which is not how things should be. Right? The righteous, that's not right. They, They deserve better. But Solomon was making a mistake in his initial assessment that we often make. He was looking at comparative righteousness. He was looking at relative righteousness. He was looking at people who are a little bit better than their neighbors. Righteousness that's relative to what other people have. But that is never a standard of righteousness that's presented to us in Scripture. That is not the bar. Being a little bit better than the person next to you earns you nothing. It merits you nothing. The only standard of righteousness presented in Scripture is perfect obedience to God's will. That is righteousness. Everything below that is not righteousness. But we do this because it satisfies our pride. If I can look around long enough to find something who's wor- somebody who's worse at something than me, then I get to feel good about myself for a minute, right? I get to feel like I'm okay, because at least I'm better than them, right? And Solomon, when he's making his initial assessment as he looks at the world, that's where he's starting from. He's seeing these righteous people. They're better than the people over here. They deserve better, But they're not actually righteous. 
Right? That's the key to this whole thing. They're not righteous. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. The only standard of righteousness given us in Scripture. What it means to be righteous is to be perfectly obedient forever to God's will. As he considers further and he observes the world around him, he realizes that there's no righteous people. Right? He comes to this conclusion. He starts off being frustrated because the righteous aren't getting what they deserve. And then as he keeps looking, comes the realization of, oh wait, there aren't actually any righteous people. Nobody actually fits that category. I can't find one anywhere. And this entirely changes the whole equation that we're looking at. Rather than seeing ourselves as good and entitled to something better than we've received from the hand of God in terms of our circumstances, in terms of our life situation, we actually see that we deserve no good. We deserve no good whatsoever. All we are entitled to as sinners is the judgment of God, is the wrath of God. When we see ourselves rightly in our sin, every single breath you take is a mercy. You don't deserve it. It is a gift that you should not receive based on what you've done. What Solomon wanted to see before the wicked is actually what should rightfully happen to every single one of us. We are all the wicked. We are all sinners who cannot make ourselves right. Whatever hand we've been dealt in this world is full of more mercy and grace and kindness than we can possibly imagine. Even in the hardest times you've walked through, there is more graciousness there than you deserve. The hardest moments of your life have been filled with so much undeserved mercy that's easy to miss because of the pain of those times. This is meant to humble us. Right? This is meant to move us towards that posture of, of truly fearing the Lord. And it does that, right? It definitely changes our perspective as we look around at the world. But we need more than that. Right? This may help us understand and think differently about when we see providence work out the way that it does, but it doesn't actually offer us any hope yet. Because right? just understanding why things are bad doesn't fix anything. They're still bad. Right? A lot of the things that we suffer, a lot of things that we lack, that we desire... The disappointments that we have are genuinely hard and they're difficult. This does not make light of suffering. Just because you deserve it doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that it's good. So we need more than just to understand. We need an answer. We need an answer. We are sinners who somehow need to be brought out of this predicament. And what Solomon has done so far is just stripped away any hope we have of getting out of it ourselves. There's no bootstrapping our way out of this. But he doesn't leave us here with just this understanding. Right? If, if we get left there, it's like, it's like getting good meals on death row. Right? That's nice. But you're still in a really bad place. Right? You still need... The problem has not been solved. We need more than to understand what's going on. We need to be delivered out of it. 
Understanding our weakness and our inability moves us toward the fear of God by helping us see him properly large and seeing ourselves rightly small. But it doesn't show us the fullness of what the fear of God leads us to. But he gives us this little glimmer. That's all we get, which is most of the time what happens in Ecclesiastes. The hope is just this little little shiny speck, and you're going to mine it out. Because it's not a real optimistic book, but it's there. You just got to look for it, right? And the glimmer of hope here is where he says that there he finds one righteous man in a thousand. He finds one righteous man in a thousand. Let's read that one last time. He says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, to try to understand and make sense of everything which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I haven't found it. He's talking about righteousness. He says, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. Okay, so what he's not saying here is that men are more righteous than women. I'm a man. I know this for a fact. Definitely not true, right? He's referring to something very, very specific here, right? And what Solomon's referring to, Solomon's thinking back to what he knows about Scripture. And he's thinking about a guy named Enoch that we read about in Genesis 5. Because if you remember, the whole crux of this problem is the fact that the righteous die. Right? That's what's given Solomon so much heartburn. Well, in Genesis 5, we read about this guy named Enoch who walked with the Lord and didn't die. God just came and took him. Right? This, this one in a thousand, is, it's hyperbole for saying, I found one out of everybody who didn't suffer this way. I found this one righteous person. So, so he's thinking back to this, this one instance that he can remember where this righteous person didn't die. And that's what he's kind of triggering on. But what the Holy Spirit's doing that Solomon isn't aware of is he's pointing us forward, not back to Enoch, but forward to Christ. Forward to Jesus. In Hebrews 4, we read this about him. In reference to Christ, it says, we have a high priest who was tempted in every point like we are, and yet without sin. Jesus is the true one in a thousand. The only actual righteous person who ever lived. He kept the law at every point. He never went against the will of God for a moment. His thoughts, his acts, his motives. He deserved neither death nor to endure the suffering that is constant in a broken world. And yet he suffered the most unjust death that has ever occurred for our sake, to atone for our wickedness and to clothe us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes this. He says, for our sake he made him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The hope that we need, the thing that actually gets us out of this predicament, right? The thing that actually delivers us from death. It's not running headlong into wickedness to try to change things. It's not trying to be better to change things because we can't be good enough. We can't be good enough to deserve life. We have to be delivered out of it. The hope has to come from outside of us. It can only come from the one truly, totally, completely righteous person that has ever lived, God's own son, Jesus Christ. He came for this express purpose because there was no one righteous. He came to be the righteous one. He came to 
Live a righteous life for you. He came in all the things you want to get out of, all these bad things that you want to try to manipulate to escape, he came and took them on voluntarily. Voluntarily. He came and subjected himself to that so that he could move through it righteously and then clothe you in his perfect obedience and have his perfect spotless blood wash away all the wickedness and sin of your unrighteousness. He is the one in a thousand that we need. He is the hope that we need in the midst of the brokenness and the suffering of this world. I think the best passage that gets to this is Paul in Philippians 3. Specifically in contrast to our own righteousness that we pursue. Listen to what Paul says about himself. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... Confidence in what I've done, my own personal righteousness. If anybody has reason for that, he says, I have more. Then he rattles off his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Get this, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Bold, bold move, Paul. So Paul's saying, look, if you, by any human standard, like, I am the righteous guy. By all the external appearances, like, there's nobody better at righteousness than me. But then he goes on and he says, but whatever gain I had, whatever I gained from all my performance, all that striving, all that zeal, all that, that, that detailed pursuit of perfection that he had, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, hear that in context. Right? He's not talking about just his money and stuff like that. He's talking about his performance, what he's done, what he's accomplished. All this stuff he poured his life into. He said, it's all garbage. I forsake all of it. I don't rest on any of it anymore because I must have Christ. For, this, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? This is the hope that we have. Right? We, all our accomplishments fall short. The most righteous man who ever lived outside of Jesus fell so far short that he gladly ditched all of his accomplishments and threw himself on Christ. But did you hear what his hope is? Remember, Solomon's problem is with death. The righteous people are dying. The problem is we're all wicked. We all deserve death. But we have a new hope now in Christ. Resurrection. Resurrection. So that's why I forsake all of my personal efforts and everything, all my striving, all my earning to join myself to Christ who has died but conquered death, who's risen. I'm hitching my wagon to that hope. 
And so no matter how bad things look as I watch providence play out, no matter how much the wicked flourish, no matter how fall far short my life falls of my hopes and expectations, no matter how many dreams die, Christ is the first fruits of what I will be. Death will not be the end. I will rise again to live in perfect glory with him. And it's proven because Christ has already risen and conquered death. That's the hope. It's not just that we understand it better. It's not just that we just realize we're all wicked. It's that there is a way out. It's just not in you. It is not in you. It is in Christ. In Christ alone. There are two ways of relating to God in this world. For all the different religions we've come up with and all the different things that have happened, there are two ways of relating to God. You either relate to God based on what you've done or resting or relating to God based on what Christ has done. That's yours by faith. Period. That's it. For all the outside trappings and dressing and paint you put on it, it's one of those two things. And only one leads to that hope of resurrection. You either stand in your righteousness, which you don't have any, or clothed in Jesus' perfect righteousness by faith. So this is ultimately what the fear of God is. When Solomon says, hey, don't pursue wickedness, don't pursue your own self-righteousness, fear God, that's what delivers you from both of them. This is what he's talking about. He's, it, to fear God means to humbly recognize that you have no righteousness, that there is nothing you can do to earn the favor of God. That is completely beyond you. It's to not look around at everyone else and think that you're better than them and to assume that's enough. It's to see how far, how far short you fall and to know that what you need lies in him and not in you. You need to be delivered. You need to be saved from outside yourself. If you're going to be righteous, it's because you're clothed in Jesus' righteousness or not at all. Guys, we don't deserve better than what we've been dealt in this world. As harsh and hard as it may be at times, we don't deserve better. But what we need is better than we deserve. Right? We need something more than what we could ever possibly deserve. And that is ours through the work of Jesus Christ. This is by no means meant or intended to minimize the suffering and the hardness of this world. Scripture doesn't do that. There's a reason we have so many psalms of lament, right? There's a reason the Hebrews tells us we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses and what it's like to be in this world. It doesn't minimize those. That's part of the reason God's given us a church and told us to bear one another's burdens because life, we're called sojourners, exiles. This is a rough place to live. That's why Jesus came to die, so he can recreate it. Right? So this is not to minimize that, but it's to provide you. It's to offer you an actual hope, right? An actual hope that survives no matter how bleak things get. Right? Think about what's going on in the world right now. The last two years, the world has been stupid. Just totally, like, it's been crazy. And now we've got a war with Russia who has nuclear bombs. Like, there's just craziness in the world, right? And the bottom line is you can press the big red button and make things a hundred times worse. This hope holds up. It holds up to anything you throw at it, right? It holds up to nuclear holocaust. This hope works. 
right? It doesn't mean things won't be hard. It doesn't mean you don't suffer real losses. It hurts when dreams die. It hurts when your health fails. It hurts when your relationships are hard. That is real. That is the effect of sin. And that's what Jesus came to die to get rid of. He's going to recreate this place and strip all of that away. Your suffering is real. That's why he gave you a church to love you and care for you through it. But you have a hope that holds up to all of it. It's the hope of resurrection. We only get it. You can't earn it. You cannot rest in yourself. You have to rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ.